Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and if you're getting used to your Bible there, it's in the last fourth of your Bible. Luke is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're in Luke these days. And uh, in 2016, we're spending the first five or six months studying Luke's gospel. We're in this series called The Life of Christ, a study in the book of Luke. So if you're turning there, it's Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. We're going to finish chapter 4 today. And if you didn't bring a Bible, hopefully there's a black one in the seat rack near you that you can pull out. It's on page 718, and you'll be right there. We're going to look at this. The message is entitled Show and Tell today. And um, some of us, when we were growing up, did you ever participate in show and tell? Uh, I haven't for a while, but my wife's a preschool teacher, so I still hear lots about it. And uh, show and tell, that's the name of the message. So as we talk about this, if you haven't been with us, here's why we're spending time in Luke. Here's the series sentence uh, here on the screen. Would you mind reading it out loud with me? We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And uh, we've also talked about the fact that when you study a gospel like Luke's gospel, there's different ways to study it. And if you see this triangle up here on the screen, you can see that uh, you can study the words, the works, and the way of Jesus. Oftentimes we study the words and the works of Jesus, but it's really the way of Jesus that is really incredible to a lot of people that have encountered him. And so we're looking at all three of those. Last week, we looked at the words of Jesus that he proclaimed when he first started his ministry in his hometown in Nazareth. Uh, at least uh, the inaugural address he read. And I've listed the two verses there uh, from some of that message of what he read there in his hometown so we can review from last week. So do you mind reading that with me in the first gray box on the notes? Let's read it out loud together, full voice. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so again, these words, Jesus announced there, and he proclaimed them. What I want you to see, though, is that in these verses we're going to study today, now he manifests them, now he implements them, now he lives them out. So as he goes to the next town, Capernaum, even though Nazareth rejected him, and he could do very little there because of their unbelief, now he's going to manifest this. In Capernaum and other towns. And again, we're not used to Capernaum. We're used to Sherman, Riverton, Chatham, Rochester. But these were really real places, just 20 miles from where he grew up. So we'll see that in just a bit. But here's the thing. When you hear that the reason why we're spending time in the book of Luke is to be like Jesus, I wonder what you hear. We talked about the fact that if the goal in life is to become like Jesus, then that's a really good way to spend time, is to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. But if when you and I hear, be like Jesus, if we hear that wrong, then that can lead us in a totally different direction than God intends. So here's what I wonder. When you hear, be like Jesus, here's my observation as a pastor. Do you hear, be a good person? Because if that's what you hear, then that, that's not the message God wants us to get. Now, I hope no one leaves today and goes uh, home and says, you know, Jeff told us that the goal in life was not to be a good person. I, like, I hope no one gets that. That's, that's not what I'm saying. 
But this past week, as I was preparing, as I read this passage, I want to talk to you about show and tell. But before I do that, I had this really strong impression that I was supposed to confront a lie that is popular in our culture, even inside the church. And I've listed that lie here at the beginning of the message notes. So if you're following along, here it is. The lie is the ultimate goal in this life is to be a good person. The ultimate goal in this life is to be a good person. When I talk to people inside or outside the church from time to time, if you talk to them about how they're planning to be ready to stand before God someday, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. And I certainly, I don't know about you, but I'm never disappointed when there's virtue in the world. I'm thankful for every good thing that's done. But if that's what we're hanging on, that's going to be a problem according to Jesus. Because as he says in Luke 18, 19, no one is good except God alone. But compared to other people, I'm a good person. And so we use that standard instead of God's. So if you and I think that the goal is to be a good person, then we're going to miss the real goal in life. So like, Jeff, why, what are you doing here? Well, let me just say, here's the overwhelming impression I got. When God created the first human beings, what did he do? He created them to have a love relationship with them, to have fellowship with them. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They did life with him. The Bible tells us, though, that there came a time when they were tempted and also they chose to do life without God. They chose to be independent and go their own way. And when they did that, the Bible says sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, sin always has the same effect in any relationship. This isn't just church stuff. Sin always separates. And so the Bible tells us that our independent choices, our willingness to go our own way, has separated us from God in a way that none of us can fix on our own. It's that serious. Therefore, the Bible tells us that unless God does something for us, we are not going to be able to live out the reason he made us. And so let me just show you here on, on the whiteboard uh, maybe a way to think about this. And um, the idea here is, is that if someone says, well, the goal is to be good. Again, I'm not saying the goal is to be bad. But actually, that the goal isn't to be good so much, because I don't know about you, but I've seen people that can be good with all kinds of motives, myself included. But the goal here, and this is a phrase I want you to take to your car today, is the goal is to have a God with, with God life. The key word, with. I talked about the wonder of with the first week in this series. So we were made to do life with God. But all of us have been separated by our own sin from God. So what did God do? Pastor Steve talked about this on Christmas Eve. And Matthew 1 talks about this. Look at these verses here on the screen. So Joseph had thought about separating from his wife Mary because he found out she was pregnant. But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what, friends? God with us. So all of us deserve to be separated from God for eternity, but God didn't want that. God so loved us. God so loved the world. The good news is, is that he sent Emmanuel, Jesus, God in human flesh to become God with us. And out of that opened the possibility of a relationship that is the greatest news in the whole world. And that life is meant to lead then to not only God being with us, but us also learning day by day in whatever we do, moment by moment, how to do life with God. But here's where good takes you. Good takes you, I'll do this for God, or I'll do this for someone else. And God says, look, some of those things may be fine. They may be good. It's just that you're not ultimately going to move towards your goal because you're moving away from your goal if you think it's about for. It's about with. So I just want to put this on the table with you. This may be brand new to you. You may have to walk around and say, I got to think about that for a little while. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty interesting. That's completely different than I've, I thought for years. I thought it was about being a good person. Look, there's a book out. Some of you have seen this book. It's called Good Without God. And this is really a play on words. I'm good without God. Like, I don't need God. But it's also, I'm good without God. I, I can be good without God and still find a rich and full life. I can find purpose, compassion, and community without having to believe in God. And friends, I just want to tell you, I, I believe the author, Greg Epstein, he's a humanist uh, chaplain at, at Harvard University. From what I understand, this guy is a very kind, likable guy. I, I respect him in that way. I'm thankful for any virtue in the world. All I want to tell you is this makes complete sense because of what our culture believes. Because that book is based on the fact that if the goal is about being good, you can actually still pull this off without God. But if the goal is to be with God, then no matter how good you and I are, we miss the goal. And so he wants to teach us how to be good with God. And that is the goal that Jesus came to bring. And I'm so thankful. This is why he announces, I have come to bring a restoration of what's got tore down by sin. I have come to bring a new possibility of grace into the world to people that have been separated from God, that now they can be brought back to God, not just through me showing up, but my sacrifice on their behalf and sending the Holy Spirit after I've risen again. So this is amazing. And again, I could talk a lot more about it, as you well know. But in the notes there, in the first grade box, what I've done this week is I've circled the word freedom in that first grade box on the second line. And I've also circled the phrase, set the oppressed free. Because last week we talked about how this message is for the poor and the blind, the spiritually poor, those who know they need what God has and those who acknowledge that they're blind and don't see like God sees. This week I want you to see that Jesus is going to actually set a whole bunch of people free. He is going to bring this good news into this situation. Now in just a minute, I'm going to read these verses. Before I do, I want you just to see the outline of this message. Do you see what it is? The first section is Jesus is on the move, teaching and healing. So we're going to see how he's on the move that way. The second section, though, is learning the way of Jesus. In other words, how can I learn this way of Jesus that he came to teach us, this God with, with God life? 
which is the way that Jesus did life here on earth. He did everything with God. He says in John 5.19, if you look up here on the screen, do we have that there? It says this, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son joins him and also does. So Jesus says, look, my whole time here on earth, I was not trying to be independent from the father. I was doing everything with the father. So much so that even when he got down to his prayer in the garden before he was crucified, he said, not my will, but yours be done. I came to do life with you and to show people how they could have a life with you too. So as we think about that, what I want you to notice is this. Jesus is on the move. I couldn't even type that without thinking of the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my favorite books I've ever read. And it's a story of four children in Britain who go to this house, big house, and they find this wardrobe, big wooden wardrobe. And as they're walking into it to hide and play hide and seek, one of them discovers, and then eventually all four of them walk through the back of this thing, and there's no back on it. And they walk out, they suddenly realize they're in a land that's snow-covered, and it's, it's called Narnia. And they're in Narnia they find out that animals talk there. And they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who who tell them that they're in danger so they need to go to their house and they'll protect them. And so they get them to their house and they begin to tell them about Narnia, try and orient them. As they're orienting them about Narnia, they begin to mention someone named Aslan. And Aslan is the lion, the Christ figure in these stories. And so they, they'd never heard of Aslan before. But the thing is, is that Mr. Beaver says this incredible sentence. He says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And C.S. Lewis writes this. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. And that's because they knew there was something about this Aslan that had authority. And then eventually, uh, Father Christmas is talking with them as well. And he says, Aslan is on the move. There it is again. And he says, the witch's magic is weakening. And what the children learn is that the reason why there's snow in Narnia all year round is because the wicked white witch has put Narnia under her spell, under her curse, and she has declared that Narnia is a place that will always, it's a place where there's always winter and never Christmas. But when Mr. Beaver begins to say, Aslan has landed, Aslan is on the move, the children begin to get a sense of expectancy, and they find out that the reason why the people of Narnia can say that is because the snow is beginning to melt. And I tell you, friends, if this passage doesn't show anything else, it shows that Jesus has landed. God with us has landed on our planet, and he is on the move. And he has come to break the spell of the evil one. And we're going to see him do that. So let's pray as we read these verses. God, help us to hear your word, to be with you so that we can learn all that you have for us. And if you need to reorient our minds, change our minds, I just pray for the grace to talk about this passage in a way that might be helpful as people step into a new week. Show us, God, what the real goal in life is and how to live it in the fullness of your grace and truth. 
And everyone agreed and said, amen. Now let's look at these verses. Would you be ready to read verse 43 in that second grade box when I get to it? Then he went down to Capernaum. Remember the last few words of chapter uh, of, the, of the passage last week in verse 30? That when they wanted to push him off the cliff in Nazareth, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What a sad day that they didn't want him. Verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them, and, before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. We often call Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law, no, no mother-in-law jokes, was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, he went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, I just read too far. Would you join me? Let's do it. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues in Judea. Now, the very first thing, if you're following along, here we go. Jesus goes on his way from Nazareth to Capernaum. Jesus goes on his way from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, that only took me a second to read that, but it took longer to get there. So here's a map if you're not used to some of the towns in Israel. If you look down at the bottom there, you'll see just to the left of the Dead Sea, Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was about a three or four days journey from Nazareth, which was right above it, up to the left of the Sea of Galilee. Then there was Cana and Capernaum. And Capernaum was on the northwest corner on top of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus makes this 20-mile walk. And whenever we see something that's above, we always says he went up to Capernaum. But this says he went down. Why? Because of the elevation. Nazareth was 1,200 feet above sea level and Capernaum was about 650 feet above sea level, so they had to walk down a certain amount of elevation. So he goes there, he gets to Capernaum. Capernaum is going to become the base of his operation. This is where Peter and Andrew and James and John had their fishing business, and their families lived there. And so as he comes into town, there's a different reception than he gets at Nazareth. There's an openness, at least, to what he wants to do. And here's a closer-up map, if you want to see, again, how he walked that. So Capernaum was there to the left, upper left of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when we think about that, out to the right, I've listed Mark 1. Mark's gospel also gives a parallel account of this, and so each add important details that are fun to, to study. And Luke, being the doctor, adds some ones that I'll point out in just a second. 
The next thing I want you to see in the notes, though, is that his words have authority to proclaim, set free, and heal. Jesus' words, when he tells people God's word, his words have authority to proclaim, set free, and heal. This does not mean that he's just a good teacher. This means that when he talks, things happen. Authority is the power to command where someone has to obey or where someone is compelled to obey. And so Jesus had this incredible authority. If you've ever listened to someone with authority, you know it's different than if they don't. And what most people were used to with their rabbis is rabbis were always quoting somebody else important, but they were never necessarily just teaching the word of God. Jesus teaches the word of God. He is the word of God teaching the word of God. And they find that he's coming right to their front door. (laughs) They can't escape it. They go, wow, I see exactly how that relates to my life. And there's this authority of God working in me. He's showing me how he wants to lead my life differently than I'm leading it. So it was full of authority. And we're going to see that right away in the first miracle that that Luke records in his gospel. And that's this next line. Notice this. In the synagogue, notice not outside the synagogue, but in the synagogue, Jesus frees a demon-possessed man. Right there in in the synagogue service. Now last week I talked about how Jewish synagogues function. And so if you didn't hear that, I'm not going to review that all right now. But just know that if a church service happened right now and there was a disruption or a distraction, it would get everybody's attention. And this particular one shows that when he landed, there was going to be confrontation between the evil one and Jesus. So right there in the middle of service, a demon-possessed man begins to cry out, you know, go away from us. Are you trying, you're going to you know, ruin us? You are Jesus of Nazareth, says the Holy One of God. And what you and I don't probably fully appreciate is that most ancient people understood that the way that you got power over someone was to use their name. That if you could name them first and be able to use their name, you could control them. So the evil one's saying Jesus of Nazareth even though he just showed up in town, he's saying, Holy One of God, he's trying to get to his identity and so that he can outmaneuver Jesus. But Jesus has none of it. He says, be silent, literally means be muzzled and basically shut up. And then he says, come out of him. Now, in those days, there were other exorcists. Jesus actually refers to this in his ministry. He says, by whom do you cast out demons? To some of the religious leaders. But they, they cast out demons using a whole bunch of mumbo-jumbo, all kinds of special magic phrases, incantations. Some people did all this kind of stuff, and then they sometimes did physical things. It was very involved. When Jesus speaks to the demon, it's instantaneous and totally it has to obey. We've talked about spiritual warfare before. I don't know whether or not you believe in demons. The Bible clearly teaches that there was a third of the angelic host that was thrown out of heaven when they rebelled along with Satan. And now they are spirit beings that are totally evil, totally unredeemable. They have only one mission, and that is to disrupt, distract, destroy, and bring distrust. And so that's going on here. Jesus calls this guy. This guy is immediately set free. Immediately. I wonder how different his life felt without that oppression. I bet most people went home that day and says, that's a synagogue service I'm not going to forget. 
for a long time. The next thing is, notice with a word, Jesus frees Simon's relative from high fever. With a word, Jesus frees Simon's relative from a high fever. So the idea here is that after the service was over, oftentimes there was a meal. But in this village, evidently some of the people, including Peter and his family, said, hey, my mother-in-law is really sick. Now, when we hear fever, we go, oh, just take a couple tablets and some water and go to sleep. No, Luke records this as only a doctor can. Mark does not mention this. He just says it's a fever. Luke says it's a high fever. There were two ways of talking about fever, major or minor. This was a major one. Some of us know that if a person gets a fever that gets to 104, 105, 106 for a sustained period of time, it endangers all your major organs, including your brain. And so what I want you to see here is that Jesus, with a word, rebukes that fever, and she is not just, like, better. She's not just better. She's so good, Mark tells us he takes her by the hand, helps her get up, and she practically jumps up, and she begins to serve them. It's a good reminder for us to know, why does Jesus give us our health? Not only to enjoy it, but to serve, but to serve. And she immediately began to say, hey, I understand. I have this opportunity to serve, and I'm ready to do it again. You healed me. The next thing is, is that with a touch, Jesus frees many sick and oppressed people. With a touch, Jesus frees many sick and oppressed people. Interesting note here. It says at sunset, people by the truckload started coming with sick people of various kinds of sicknesses. Why at sunset? If you know Jewish law, from sunset at Friday to sunset at Saturday was the Sabbath. You were not allowed to do work on the Sabbath, so they had decided that if you carried a burden or carried a load, that was work. Therefore, not until sunset could people, as excited as they were to get near Jesus, could they bring their loved ones, and boy, did they come. They brought people. Now, Jesus, think about this, because he had just demonstrated with a word what he could do and the authority he had. He could have literally stood in front of the whole crowd and said, be healed, and they would have all been healed. He could have spoken the word. That's how powerful Jesus is. Guess what? My friend once said to me, by the way, that Jesus is so powerful he could do drive-by healings. The idea here is, though, is he didn't do that. What does he do? The Bible says he laid hands on each one of them. That only takes me a half second to say it took hours to do. And Jesus, can you imagine as he touched them? And friends, whenever you hear about human touch, I know our world has been scarred by inappropriate human touch. Not talking about that. That's something that takes something away from someone. Jesus was imparting something to people that was more than just a touch. It was life-changing. And his touch is still changing lives today. The last thing I want you to see is that very early, Jesus finds a solitary place to be with God. Very early, Jesus finds a solitary place. Uh, That word can mean lonely place. It can be the same idea as a wilderness where he had been tempted. Very early, Jesus finds a solitary place. Mark's gospel tells us while it was still dark. So Jesus has just had a big day of ministry. But early the next morning, he gets out to be alone with God, not because he hadn't been with God all day the day before, because now he needs to be alone with God in a different kind of way. 
in a way where he can get recalibrated, where he can have that kind of deep fellowship out of which he can serve in powerful ways. And if Jesus needed that as the son of God, how much do we need times like that? Look at what Mark 135 says. It actually tells us very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed with his father. So we see these different scenes in this whole time in Capernaum. He's on the move and he's doing things powerfully. How do we apply that to our lives? I want to talk about the way of Jesus and how we learn the way of Jesus with Jesus. The first thing I want you to see is that under God's authority, I can live a God with, with God life. Under his authority, if I'm willing to recognize that he is the one that made me and made me for a purpose. And instead of kicking against that, instead of blowing that off, I realized, oh my goodness, the wisest thing I can do is submit myself and humbly depend on and trust you so that you can guide me, so that you can lead my life. This is what Jesus did. He came from the Father full of grace and truth, but he said, I don't do anything the Father isn't doing. I join him. I look for what he's doing and I do it with him. And so he says, that's how you and I can do every day of our lives, is to know the grace and the assurance that can never be taken away from us, that God is with us. But now out of that security to live with God in everything we do. But it all starts with having that humble spirit Jesus had. That's the way of Jesus, is to walk humbly with the Father and submit myself to his authority but notice along with that, while he was doing that, Jesus doesn't just tell, he shows God's good news. Jesus doesn't just tell, he shows God's good news. And that's where this title of the message comes from. Show and tell. We've been teaching about this for years. We've been, been seeing other passages like Matthew 4, 23 and 24. Steve's taught on this. We want to serve the world just like Jesus did. Not just by telling people the good news. That's very important. Someone's got to say Jesus. But also by showing. Some of us want to live just one of those. We want to say, well, I'll show people, but I don't feel comfortable telling them. You know, it's not real popular nowadays. Talk about Jesus. And so Jesus says, no, no. It's to show and tell. But some of us are all about telling. We're, we're quick to tell the world, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. And, they, and they, they aren't willing to trust us because we haven't shown them what Jesus is like. You know, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And so this balance of Jesus doing that, he didn't just speak the truth to people, but he also showed them the compassion and the touch of God. And many people's hearts were opened and many people were healed so they could serve Many people were changed by how he showed them. And that's what we want to be too. I'll just say two things about this. One, years ago, my dad and I were having a conversation in the park. And some of you may not know, but he was the senior pastor before me. And he just said, Jeff, here's what I've learned about Cherry Hills. Please never forget it. There is a core of people, always has been in the Cherry Hills family, that have a tangible concern for the hurting, the needy in our community. And the minute we take our hearts away from that, we will miss being the church Jesus wants us to be. And friends, I've witnessed this. I had a lady come up to me after the last service and say, by the way, when you said that about what your dad said, 
I know people in our community that don't go to Cherry Hills, but 10 years ago, someone in this church family touched them and they couldn't believe it. and They wondered why. I've heard stories like that. We try not just to take cherry pies to people. We also try and take the love of Christ in a tangible way with a word and a touch. The other thing is that my dad said to me, Jeff, when I first started out as a pastor, I used to try and figure out what I needed to say to the people in the church, and then I'd look for Bible verses to back it up. He said, it wasn't real impressive. It didn't have much authority. And one day God said to me, hey, how about you just teach my word and see what happens in people's lives? And he said, when I began to humbly do that, the authority God had in people's lives was markedly different. And then he said to me, you and I have no authority apart from the word of God. Jesus shared the words of God and the compassion and showed people God. That's what we want to be, right? As a church in this community. The last thing in both word and touch, he proclaims God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, you know, a lot of us go, is that like someday far away? No, it's both now and later. God's kingdom literally is wherever God's getting his way. That's why my professor used to call it the reign of God. Wherever God is reigning, there his kingdom is. Wherever the king is, getting his way is the kingdom. And so Jesus came to proclaim the good news. He goes, look, I'm on the move. There's a kingdom that has come your way. I'm going to show it to you as well as tell you about it. But I'm going to do it with both word and touch. And friends, when you and I begin to understand this, we understand the power that Jesus wants to have in our life. And that's why he keeps calling us to a God with, with God life. Because once he has our attention like that, he can show us how to look at people differently, circumstances differently, our city differently, not with any arrogance, but total gratitude and humility for the privilege. And so here's the closing question. Who would you have me love with a word or touch like yours this week, Lord? Who would you? I'm open. I'm, I'm understanding. I mean, just imagine with me. As you're putting your notes away, just imagine this with me. If you and I walk out of here today, we walk to our car, and we begin to understand this afternoon, tonight, and tomorrow, we begin to say, oh my goodness, the whole goal in life is for me to know your grace of God with me. And out of that grace and the security of that incredible relationship, now my whole response to you is to be, how do I do everything I do with you? So that now I'm not doing it for you, I'm doing it with you. And I'm learning how to do it the way you would want me to do it. What would happen in our city? Can you imagine how many people you interact with that I never may meet? How if each one of us just go wherever we are and ask him to give us our, his eyes, his hands, his feet. Let me just say one thing as we prepare for communion now. I've seen the power of this. When an everyday human being begins to understand this. There was a man in Wheaton where Trish and I used to worship before we ever moved to Springfield back in the 80s. And I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. In fact, I was going through a time where I was so confused about who I was and what I was supposed to do. I was just, I was just confused. And I was sitting in a church service just like this one. And it was time for communion, so I was praying. I was just going, Lord, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm confused. And as I was praying, 
the elders, after they had served communion in those days of that church, all began to walk down the center aisle to exit. As they were doing that, there was a man who I knew, his name was Joe, who had lost three kids all under the age of 18. He and his wife had known grief of a major kind. But he had also understood that his life could be with God and God could be with him no matter what he went through. Anyway, as he's walking by me, I will never know he's in heaven now what possessed him. But he put his hand on my shoulder. It was more of a brush. And in that moment, it was like Jesus walked by me. It didn't solve all my problems, but something healed inside of me and something assured me that God was going to help me. You can be that person. And so can I. Can you believe it? It's a miracle. This is the good news we have to share. And when we come to the communion table now, let me just say this. Some of you may say, I'm new here. I've never taken communion with you guys. We don't want you to feel awkward or out of place. We're so glad you're here. We, in a moment, are going to have gentlemen serve us with trays, with double cups of bread and grape juice to represent Jesus' body and blood, sacrificed on our behalf to be God with us. And as you have an opportunity, if it comes by your way, you say, should I take it? Even if you're from another church, if you have recognized that you have gone your own way, but now you have put your trust in Christ and received his gift, then he says, take this. This isn't Cherry Hill's table. This is my table. But if you've never done that, do you realize that's what you could do today? That's how good this good news is. Today is the day of salvation for some of you, I know. But maybe you're still on the way. Maybe you still need to think about this so that your heart's in it. Then we are glad you're here. Just let the tray pass. No one will look down on you. But think about your relationship with God and what might be keeping you from trusting him the way he wants you to. And then hold on to the grape juice and bread till we can all take it together, those that take it. Okay? Let me pray. Now, Lord, you knew that we often forget and that this journey is long. So thank you for reminding us that you came to be God with us when we didn't have a prayer. And now you want to teach us with your Holy Spirit living inside of us how to do everything with you, not just for you. In your name we pray.